I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Acts chapters 15 through 17. Acts chapter 15 is uh, an account of the Jerusalem Council, uh, very important in understanding the contrast between law and grace. You should note that the book of Galatians was written following this Jerusalem Council. And Galatians was written to answer these questions that were raised here at the Jerusalem Council once and for all. And you may want to take a look at the book of Galatians at some point during today's reading. Let's begin by reading Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Verse 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching and discipling in Antioch, just north of Israel and Syria, 
It's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem when they get some visitors to lend them a teaching hand from Judea. Notice what these guest lecturers taught in verse 1. They taught, except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now keep in mind the church was a new entity here, 15 years old or so. It started with a virtually all-Jewish congregation on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. So at that point in time, all the men in this new church had been circumcised according to the Jewish law. These people were having considerable difficulty reconciling the place of Gentiles in this new entity, the church. Previously, if you wanted to become a Jew, you had to undergo the rite of circumcision. So it was understandable that many in the church in Jerusalem were still convinced that this would be necessary, a necessary ritual for those wanting to become part of the church as well, even if you were a Gentile and not a Jew. Accepting Jesus as Savior included accepting Judaism as a foundation for one's faith. They viewed Christianity as a layer built upon Judaism. Then we see a reality that really complicates this discussion, verse 5. Right there in the church of Jerusalem were Pharisees who'd gotten saved but retained their affiliation as Pharisees. They were particularly adamant about the fact that salvation required not only baptism but circumcision as well. Not only so, but add to that the observance of all the Jewish law by these new Gentile converts. So the first Jerusalem councils called to order to discuss the question of reasonable requirements for these new Gentile believers. Here's the question. Do we require them to be circumcised? Do we require them to keep the rituals of the law of Moses to which they'd never been exposed before? Incidentally, many believers today are convinced that Christians are obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. Ironically, they categorically disregard the strict mandates of the fourth commandment. That's the Sabbath-keeping commandment, the keeping the Saturday of the, each week as a holy day where you do no work whatsoever. And they do that without even acknowledging that they skipped one of the commandments. If you'd like to have more information on this issue of observing the fourth commandment, then look at the article that I've written entitled The Sabbath Day. You can go to it by clicking on the link that's in today's notes, written notes, or you can look under the topic section of BibleTrack.org for the article entitled The Sabbath Day. Now pay close attention here to the decree issued from this Council of Jerusalem. You'll see that the Gentile believers were not to be bound by the law of Moses, and that includes the Ten Commandments. Since it's stated so clearly here, how is it that so many believers today are confused about the role of the Ten Commandments in Christianity? Well, the year here is around 49 AD. It's about the same time Paul wrote Galatians. Of course, Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to participate in this discussion. After all, they'd been responsible for preaching to countless Gentiles who subsequently had gotten saved. Peter was there also. He had won the first Gentile converts after Pentecost when he went to the household of Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10. Peter makes a great speech with an excellent point in verse 10 when he says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Isn't it interesting that Peter here is saying that his fathers weren't able to bear the yoke of the bondage 
of the law of Moses, and that includes, by the way, the Ten Commandments. Then in verse 12, it was time for Paul and Barnabas to report to them all about the Gentiles who'd gotten saved along with the accompanying validating miracles. We aren't given any additional details regarding their words that day. Finally, James in verse 13 stands up to pull it all together. He refers to Peter's presentation of the gospel to the Gentiles back in Acts chapter 10, but makes no mention of any points made by Paul or Barnabas. He makes his strongest case by quoting, well, sort of quoting Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, regarding the prophecy that Gentiles would be included in the Davidic kingdom. Then James recommends a course of action in verses 19 and 20 when he says, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. He suggests the reasoning for such a decree in verse 21 when he says, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. In other words, these Gentiles need to be considered to the Jews in these Gentile cities a suggestion that they agree to formalize and publish. Though written down and distributed, it hardly settles the issue, and we'll see that in the remainder of the book of Acts as well as in the epistles of Paul later on. So now how do we make everybody happy on this issue? Well, here's the decree beginning with verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood, and from things strangled and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which, when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles, notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. So after this meeting and when it's time to notify the folks up in the Gentile territories, what do we require from these Gentiles who've gotten saved? Many of them are completely unfamiliar with the requirements of the Mosaic Law. They've never heard of the Ten Commandments. And please understand, these Gentiles were likely ignorant on everything Jewish. The battle lines are drawn. On the one side, you have the born-again Pharisees, 
And they want these Gentiles to become Jewish proselytes as a prerequisite to becoming part of the church. Then on the other hand, you have Paul and Barnabas, and they say just to leave them alone. There's nothing in the law of Moses that pertains to them. Now, James actually acknowledges the Gentile exemption from keeping the law of Moses in verse 24 when he refers to the false doctrine that had been taught to the Gentiles when he says, For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words subverting your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. James comes up with a compromise. Now, make no mistake about it. It was, in fact, a compromise. We'll see in Acts chapter 21, verses 15 to 26, that it really, well, it really didn't settle the issue for the staunch legalist in the church with regard to Paul's ministry, nor did it settle anything for Paul and Barnabas. They more or less go on to disregard the content of this compromise after this council, although we do see in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, that Paul was faithful in citing it immediately after departing from Jerusalem to embark on his second missionary journey. However, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and the continuation of that discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 some 10 years later regarding meat offered to idols, well, that discussion completely disregards the ruling of this council. Give James credit, though. He did exercise great statesmanship in holding together this alliance of such diverse believers. You'll notice how carefully worded is the letter James wrote regarding this issue in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. He says that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare you well. It strikes me as interesting that James falls short of declaring that these new suggestions are laws for the Gentiles to observe. He simply concludes that in observing this subset of Jewish law restrictions, they would do well, he says. Conclusion, Paul and Barnabas are then accompanied by two others, Judas and Silas, as witnesses of the Jerusalem Council's decision. One of these witnesses, Silas, later accompanies Paul on his second missionary journey. We'll see that in Acts chapter 16 in a few moments. This Silas is the same individual identified in Paul's epistles as Silvanus in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Their first stop is Antioch, a long trip from Jerusalem way up in Syria, about 300 miles away. They immediately gather the converts there and deliver the official message from Jerusalem. Now let me offer one more admonition regarding this event in the whole context of the book of Acts. This book is an accurate account of the events of the early church. That does not mean that everything that was done and said by godly men is to be emulated and practiced by us. We're to always use the epistles of the New Testament to validate practices that we see in the book of Acts. Now here's a prime example. The Jewish practice mentioned here of abstaining from blood makes it completely unacceptable for one to eat a steak that's cooked rare. This restriction actually predates the law of Moses all the way back to the covenant God made with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. You'll never catch a practicing Orthodox Jew eating a rare steak. However, back in the time in which this was written, this compromise was designed to cause as little offense as possible 
by the Gentiles toward the Jews. Now, don't take this as a doctrine for all time. Go ahead and enjoy your steaks the way you like them cooked. Most of all, read the book of Acts in context, just like what you read in the activities of God-fearing men of the Old Testament in context. They didn't always do or say the right thing, but a lesson was always learned. If you'd like more information regarding the proper way to view the book of Acts, then go back and take a look at the uh, at the introduction that I wrote on the book of Acts in the reading on July the 4th, the introduction preceding Acts chapter 1. Oh, and one more thing. Notice that these Gentile believers were exempted from keeping the Mosaic law, including the Ten Commandments, as a result of this decree from Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, the team splits up. Verse 36, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord, and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. Now here we see that Paul wants to revisit all the churches that have been established. Barnabas wants to take John Mark along, but Paul says no. As a result, Barnabas and John Mark, they head out to minister together, and Paul picks up Silas as his ministry companion for his second missionary journey. Now, I've provided a map for Paul's second missionary journey on this page. You can take a look at that in the written notes of BibleTrack.org. However, there seems to be more to the story regarding the split between Paul and Barnabas here. Let's note some of the information that we know about John Mark. First of all, it's generally accepted that John Mark was the writer of the Gospel of Mark. According to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he was the cousin of Barnabas. And Peter refers to him as my son in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. That's an indication that Peter may have been the one who actually led him to the Lord. John Mark first began accompanying Paul on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, along with Barnabas. John Mark left Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. This was just prior to an intense concentration of ministry focused on Gentile salvation. Barnabas had withdrawn from Paul and the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, and that was an action for which Paul criticized both Peter and John Mark. So at this point in time, Paul and Barnabas are back in Jerusalem before the council. It's been two years or so since John Mark left Paul and Barnabas, now John Mark wants to rejoin them, and Paul's absolutely against it. Could it be that Paul could not get past the failure of John Mark to be loyal to the ministry back in Acts chapter 13 when he left? Could it be that John Mark, a Jew, had left Paul and Barnabas back in Acts chapter 13 because of a disapproval of their intense ministering to Gentiles instead of Jews? Well, perhaps so. And now Paul just doesn't want him back on the ministry team. That brings us to Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, where Timothy joins Paul. Verse 1, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra, 
And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Well, Timothy here was a great find, and he wanted to accompany Paul and Silas on their missionary journey. There was a problem, though. Timothy was not Jewish. Well, his mother was Jewish, but it was traditionally the father that determined one's heritage back then. Moreover, Timothy had been raised as a Greek without the right of circumcision. Realizing that this would be a detriment to reaching Jews for Christ, Paul, being a Pharisee, takes Timothy through the proselyte ritual to Judaism, which included circumcision. Now, Timothy, as a Christian missionary, also fulfilled the Jewish expectations of those who were still insistent that the gateway to Christianity was through Judaism. You must understand this was done for the sake of testimony. It was not done as a mandate for Christians to keep Jewish law. We see here that Paul, Silas, and Timothy head through predominantly Gentile cities preaching the gospel. They're now armed with the decree of the Jerusalem Council, as seen in Acts chapter 15, verse 29. And that decree exempts Gentiles from having to go through the Jewish passage before becoming Christians. Notice verse 4, it says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. For the first time, Paul was able to preach to the Gentiles the unfettered gospel with the formal blessing of the church back in Jerusalem. And then we see in chapter 16, verse 6, that Paul gets a vision to go over into Macedonia. Verse 6, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come through Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing to Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. So here we see that while on his missionary journey, Paul had a dream. And in that dream, it was come over into Macedonia and help us. Well, that's enough for Paul. It's off to Macedonia. That was a Roman province lying north of Greece. This is way north and west of Paul's trip into Asia Minor. This is the area where Philippi and Thessalonica are located. In verses 11 through 15, Lydia gets saved. Verse 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. 
And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord had opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Well, Lydia, she was a businesswoman. Uh, sewed purple dye, as a matter of fact. After getting saved, she offers Paul and Silas lodging there in Philippi. My God is good, isn't he? Now, Acts chapter 16, beginning now with verse 16, where we see Paul and Silas in prison. Verse 16, it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by the soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive neither to observe being Romans. And multitudes rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Well... Turns out the Romans in Philippi, they aren't too keen on Paul and Silas either. So here's a gal who was demon-possessed, enabling her to successfully engage in fortune-telling. She continues to follow Paul and Silas around proclaiming the truth and saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. After a few days of this, Paul's had enough, and he commands the demon which enabled her to tell fortunes to leave her. Management is very unhappy, beats them and throws them into jail as disruptive Jews. But in verses 25 to 40, the jailer gets saved. Verse 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in the house. And it took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant, saying, Let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told this, saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. 
But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. Well, while they're in jail, there's a big earthquake. Not just any kind of an earthquake, but one that causes the jail doors to open and their binding chains to fall off. This makes the jailer suicidal. No worry, though, nobody leaves. The jailer is so touched by this incident, he asks to be saved and takes them home to meet the family, all of whom get saved also. The next day, the officials practically have to beg Paul and Silas to leave the jail and to leave town. Paul had pointed out that he was beaten without cause, and he was a Roman citizen. These Roman officials were anxious to have this legal misunderstanding out of the way. After some goodbyes, though, they do leave town. Now that's a success story. Brings us to chapter 17 of the book of Acts, where we see Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead of this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people." When they'd found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. In Thessalonica, Paul just preaches a standard message about Christ being the Messiah. He gets some converts there, but the influential Jews stir up a mob against them who subsequently assault the home of their host, Jason. These Jews falsified their testimonies, though, said that Paul was teaching another king besides Caesar. You must admit that was quite hypocritical on the part of those jealous Jews to take the Messianic teaching to which they subscribed and use it against Paul and Silas. It results in the mob trial of some of Paul's converts. They finally let them go, but due to the controversy, it was time to move on. And then it's off to Berea in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15, verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night into Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogues of the Jews. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women which were Greeks 
and of men not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea. But Silas and Timothy abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him into Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed, they departed. They get better reception here in Berea, but those pesky Jews in Thessalonica hear about their success, and they send people to stir up the Bereans also. Silas and Timothy stay, but Paul takes off for Athens. Paul makes a hasty departure from Berea and instructs Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. They don't actually join him again until Paul reaches Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 5. Now, these Athenians, they're pretty open-minded, as we'll see in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areochobus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. God that made the worlds and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breadth and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him though he is not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent." because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them.
Paul begins his ministry here in Athens by going into the synagogues and preaching to the Jews. It's not long, however, before the Greeks in Athens become extremely curious about this new message, the message of Jesus that Paul is preaching. They decide they want in on the action. Now, here's a note from Easton's Bible Dictionary about the city of Athens. It's the capital of Attica, the most celebrated city of the ancient world, the seat of Greek literature and art during the golden period of Grecian history. Its inhabitants were fond of novelty and were remarkable for their zeal in the worship of the gods. It was a sarcastic saying of the Roman satirist that it was easier to find a god at Athens than a man. So here we find in the process of his preaching, Paul's ideas are realized to be new material to these philosophy-hungry Athenians. He's then asked by the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers to appear before Areopagus. That was the council that met in the open air on Mars Hill. He addresses the issue of their superstition. They'd studied philosophy and reason for centuries to the point that they really had no core beliefs any longer. They were just too smart for their own good. By the way, you've got to love Paul's introduction to these Greek philosophers in verse 23. He says, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Paul says, Hey, I know your unknown God. Then in verses 24 to 31, Paul zips through several of their principles of philosophy and demonstrates that while they have questions, Jesus is the answer. He gets mixed reviews on this message with some converts we see in verse 34. The good news is that nobody tries to stone him here when he preaches the truth. Well, besides, these Athenians were too sophisticated to act violently toward new knowledge. It's obvious that their God had become philosophy. Incidentally, notice verse 26 as Paul makes reference to the activities of God when he says, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. Paul was undoubtedly referencing the Song of Moses, where in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, the song that Moses wrote says, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. In other words, Moses' song proclaims that the dividing of the nations facilitated the appointment of designated land for his chosen people, Israel. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.